seated. I invite you to turn with me again in your copy of God's Word to the book of Matthew. Our text this morning can be found on page 828. It's the end of Matthew 22. We've been in Matthew 22 for a while now. It's a long chapter with a lot of different parts. Uh, So we have kind of gone through uh, bit by bit this chapter, really uh, question by question. Uh, you You will remember or if you've, you're joining us this morning for the first time, you will note that we are in the middle of the final uh, section of the ministry of Jesus. And what we find in these pages of Matthew, uh, really starting back at the beginning of Matthew 21, is the last week of Jesus. And particularly in the last week, we have multiple chapters of an ongoing discussion between Jesus and the religious leaders in the synagogue. We read in the middle of Matthew 21 that he entered, sorry, not the synagogue, the temple. He entered the temple. The chief priests and the elders were there, and they began to discuss, debate, argue uh, back and forth. And so we're in the middle of that. We think it's the Tuesday of the final week uh, of Jesus. And so we pick up our passage, the end of Matthew 22, beginning at verse 41. And you will note... After lots of questions, who now is the one who asks the questions? Verse 20, 41. Now, while the Pharisees were gathered together, Jesus asked them a question, saying, What do you think about the Christ? Whose son is he? They said to him, The son of David. He said to them, How is it then that David, in the spirit, calls him Lord, saying, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. If David then calls him Lord, how is he his son? And no one was able to answer him a word, nor from that day did anyone dare to ask him any more questions. The grass withers, the flower fades, the word of our God will stand forever. Would you pray with me? Our Lord, we have probably come this morning with some sort of question on our hearts. Some questions for you, whether we come as skeptics, whether we come as critics, whether we come as those trusting in your love and your sovereignty, but still wrestling with the hard questions of life. I pray, O Lord, you would give us some answers today. More importantly, I pray you would give us your son as the true answer. That our questions would fade away. And they would be replaced by faith, simple, true, childlike faith in Christ. Show him to us today. Grant us faith to trust and to believe. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Have you ever wondered what it would would be like to be famous? You've probably thought that'd be pretty cool, right? (laughs) I'd love to be famous. I love to travel around and have friends wherever I go, right? Walk into a room, walk into a store, walk into a restaurant, and everybody knows you, and everybody greets you, and they want to shake your hand and give you a hug and probably buy your meal, right? It'd be pretty cool to be famous. Unless you ask an actual famous person what it's like. Years ago, Sports Illustrated for Kids, my favorite magazine growing up, uh, ran an article or a bunch of pictures about Michael Jordan. The most famous man, really most famous person, 
probably in the world in the 90s. And what it was like for him. And he had to go out and he would wear disguises wherever he went. And it was, a, again, a series of these funny pictures of Michael Jordan with like an afro and the peace sign. Like he's disguised as a hippie, right? Like no one's going to notice this 6'6 six, six guy just walking around. Or he's, he's hidden as like this grandma with a wig and a shawl knitting, right? That he's going to kind of go around comically and no one's going to know uh, that he's Michael Jordan. He wanted to keep and he had real costumes by which he would keep his identity a secret. And if you've been with us for this year in Matthew's gospel, you have come to see somebody else who's kept his identity a secret. Jesus doesn't, of course, use silly costumes to disguise who he is, but you and I have been frustrated at times when he does something and he says, now don't tell anybody about it. When he shows somebody something and he says, now don't go talk to anyone about this. My time's not yet come. Theologians and biblical scholars call this the messianic secret. The secret that we all know the truth, but the secret in Jesus' day that he is the Messiah, but don't tell anyone yet. He's not ready for people to know, keep his identity a secret. But here, here in this last week, here in these fateful days, this Palm Sunday and Monday, and then this great debate going on in the temple on Tuesday, the secret's out. He can't keep it quiet anymore. He doesn't want to keep it quiet anymore. It's time to declare. It's time to announce who he really is. We see in these passages, particularly in our verse this morning, the revealing of the messianic secret. And here's who Jesus is according to our text, according to him. Jesus is great David's greater son. And as such, he will reign from God's throne forever. He is great David's, King David, we'll come back to this in a moment. He's great David's greater son. And as such, he will reign from God's throne forever. The secret's out. So what does this tell us? Let me give you some truths this morning about this Messiah. We have three of them coming out of our text. Number one, I want you to see the royalty of the Messiah. The royalty of this Messiah. Verse 42 is really where this, uh, this comes from. Jesus now becomes the questioner. He has been the subject of three questions from three different groups that we've seen the last three weeks. It's sort of like the end of the job interview, right? The, the interviewers have asked you all their questions. The time's up, and then they look at you and they say, do you have any questions for us? You sort of mumble around and try to come up with an impressive question, right? Jesus has a question for them, and they're not ready for it. He starts off simple, verse 42. What do you think about the Christ? We can just pause right there and ask every one of us in this room, if Jesus were here asking you, what do you think about the Christ? The Christ is the messianic figure of the Old Testament. The Christ is the one who has been prophesied about. He is the one who has been promised. He is the key figure that the Jewish nation is waiting to come. So these Jewish scholars, this Jewish audience, these Jewish leaders, of course, have many thoughts about the Messiah that is to come. But Jesus isn't asking sort of like a Bible study. So what do you think about this verse? What do you think about that verse, right? No, he's saying, and he's going to say in a moment, things that are true about the Christ. And he wants to know if your thoughts line up with that, which is true. It's not, I'm just curious what you think about this. It's not that kind of question. 
It's are your thoughts the true thoughts? Do you think the right thing? You can think the wrong thing. Do you think the right thing about this Christ? He follows that up before they even have anything to say by asking them, secondly, whose son is he? So he gets real specific. Who is the father of the Christ, of the messianic figure, the Messiah? Or whose son is he? Now, it seems a random question for us, right? What does this really have to do with, with anything? He'll come and explain in a moment what it has to do with who he is. Uh, they answer him, the son of David, and they get a gold star. This is the right answer. This is the answer Jesus wanted them to give. He is the son of David. In their mind, how are they answering this question? They're thinking back to the great king of Israel. The guy, the, the, the little David you guys learn about in Sunday school, right, with the sling and with Goliath. That little David has grown up and he's the king. And he's this great king and he's a mighty king. And we've got all these books in the Bible and stories about him and songs that he wrote and all this wonderful stuff about the king. But in particular... What they're thinking about this king is the promise that God made to David. And God's promise to David that his throne will be established forever. But it's not just King David's throne. It's his son will sit on his throne forever. So the obvious question for the people of Israel, who is this son? And where is he? Because he has a son. His name's Solomon. We know the story of Solomon. Solomon comes next. He seems great, right? And if you know the story towards the end, he's not so great. And we have other kings that come after other sons of David, some who are good, some who are not so good, some who are really bad, some who are mediocre, and, and on and on, until the kingdom itself sort of peters out and dissolves and is taken away, such that this throne now sits empty. So for there to be someone to come who is the son of David, they're thinking someone is going to sit on that throne. Someone's going to bring back the kingdom. Someone's going to bring back the people of God to their place under their king to rule and reign forever. It's a pretty hopeful thought, right, that the Christ is going to be the son of David. And so when we get to the New Testament, we get to the first book of the New Testament, what does Matthew tell us? What does he give us first? He gives us a family tree, a genealogy that's all focused on who? On David. It flows to David. It flows from David. It shows us that Jesus, the one who has come, is the son of David. Now, not everybody recognizes this at first. If you want to go back and do the, the word search for David in your Matthew, Matthew's gospel so far, you'll see it pops up a number of times, but it's always on the lips of the poor and needy. The leaders don't see Jesus as the son of David yet. It's the blind calling out, have mercy on me, son of David. It's the sick, it's the poor. They recognize who he is. The leaders are blind to it until he shows up on a donkey with palm branches waving and people crying out, Hosanna to who? The son of David. This is Jesus re re removing the veil, as it were, coming before them victoriously, triumphantly, no longer hiding, no longer in the shadows, declaring that he is the son of David. You who are fans of the Lord of the Rings series will remember the king figure. And I won't give it away for those of you that haven't read it somehow yet, right? There is a king figure. 
And before everybody knows and worships, or bows down to him as king, he's just this regular guy. He's just hanging out in the, in the pub. He's got the grubby clothes on like everyone else. And people just sort of pass by unknowingly the rightful king. It's only a matter of time until he takes his throne and he emerges from the shadows in his glory. So we have here beginning with Jesus. And the simple truth that he tells us just in this first verse is that Jesus is king. You've said it, you've confessed it, you've thought it a million times. But we should pause to remember it this morning, that Jesus, Jesus, the one who was put to death by earthly powers, the one who was seemingly defeated and crushed and mocked, he is king. He was king. He is king. He always will be the king. He's in the line of David, the very promise made thousands of years ago that the saints of old have waited on from generation through generation through generation has come to be fulfilled in this man, pointing from this psalm, telling us he is the son of David. He is Israel's great king. But that's not all. It's not all that he is just a king. It would be good enough, wouldn't it? But as he speaks of the temple earlier in Matthew 12, you'll remember that he says something greater is here. He can say the same thing about David. Something or someone greater is here. We see secondly in our text from the royalty of the Messiah, something greater, the divinity of the Messiah. The Messiah is divine. The Messiah is God. Jesus goes to a second set of questions from in verse uh, 43 down to verse 45. This is sort of a common teaching method of the day, which is to set up an apparent contradiction and have the scholars or have the students sort of debate and discuss who has the right answer. How can we settle this apparent contradiction? Uh, How can we resolve these issues? And so Jesus sets up this problem by going back and looking at Psalm 110. And what he does is he says, we've already established we have a father, David, and a son, the Christ, the Messiah, But then if we go back and look at this psalm, it seems that there's somebody higher or above the Father. And so how is this messianic figure both below the king, David, and above King David? Look at the psalm uh, with me. We've read it. We've sang it. Let's look at it one more time. Uh, If you have your Bibles, turn with it. Me, just the first couple lines. You need to go back because we're going to see something that doesn't appear in the quote that's in the psalm itself. Psalm 110, we see in the first few words, three, we'll call them characters. We need to identify who's who to understand Jesus' point. So first, as we read the psalm, we have the author, a psalm of David. So Psalm 110 is written by King David. Some people disagree with that. Some people take issue with that first line. Jesus is telling us in no uncertain terms, uh, David wrote Psalm 110. He even says... How is it then that David in the spirit calls him Lord? What Jesus is saying is that David wrote Psalm 110 inspired by God's Holy Spirit. In fact, all of scripture is written by the inspiration of God's spirit in the spirit inspired by God. That the Holy Spirit carried along all of the authors of scripture such that we trust not only Psalm 110, but all of these words 
to be God's inspired words to us, the divine author through the human author. So David wrote Psalm 110, and it begins, the Lord says to my Lord. Your Bible in English may note that first Lord is all caps, the second one is not. That's their way of showing us those are two different words in the original language, right? The Lord, all capital letters, Yahweh, I am who I am, the covenant God of Israel, the name that God gives to reveal who he is to his own chosen people. That Lord, that God, Yahweh, says to, and we have our third character here, says to my Lord, my master, Adonai is the word there. Who is David talking about is the question. we got the author who's clearly David, and we've got Yahweh, clearly God, but who is David referring to that God is talking to in Psalm 110? David's watching a conversation happen. He is watching God say something to someone else. And we know David wrote it because Jesus tells us. And we know God wrote this because Jesus tells us he does. So this, the, the problem he's proposing before this, the Pharisees is who is this that the Lord is talking to? Well, we can say at least he's somebody that is better than David, somebody higher than David, somebody in greater authority than David. He's got a greater position than David. Uh, He has definitely a better throne than David. I mean, David's got a great throne here on earth. Uh, This throne is at God's right hand. Seems like a bit of a better place than David's. The point Jesus is making is that the Lord here is pointing us to the Messiah. That this same son of David, the prophecy of the Messiah to come, is the guy, the one, to whom the Lord, Yahweh, is speaking in the beginning of this psalm. That means that whoever this is, the Messiah, is greater than David. David's son, then, is his Lord as well. Something unique, something incredibly different than the, the Jewish scholars were used to hearing about the Messiah to come. It's wonderful that he's in the royal line of King David, but there's something else. There's something a whole lot bigger. There's something a whole lot better going on here because David's son is also David's Lord. To call Jesus the son of David is not wrong, right? It's just incomplete. I want you to think for a second about Superman, right? You kids know who Superman is, right? If you were to describe Superman and you said he's a tall guy with dark hair, Would you be wrong? No, that's an accurate description of Superman. You're leaving a couple important things out though, right? If Jesus is only and simply the son of David, it's true, but there's a whole lot more going on. Here's what Paul says in Romans chapter one, uh, verse three. He says of the son, he was descended from David according to the flesh, right? So great, 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 great grandfather's David. And was declared to be the son of God in power according to the spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead. You have this ordinary category of a king from David combined with this transcendent, glorious, rare, unique category of a divine Messiah. And Jesus is saying in Psalm 110, they're combined in him. He is the son of David and he is the son of God. One scholar says, Jesus synthesizes the concept of a human Messiah in David's line 
with the concept of a divine Messiah who transcends human limitations. The ordinary son of David is also the glorious son of God. This Messiah, who we understand as king, this Jesus, who is king, we can add maybe a couple other words to describe him. He is Jesus, king of everything. He's not just king of the house of David. He's not just king of Jerusalem or Judea and Samaria and Israel. He's not just king of the earth. He's not just king of the world. He's not just king of the spiritual realms, right? He is Lord and king over everything. This, dear friends, is who you have come to worship today, whether you realize it or not. Whether you walked in here prepared to meet with the king of the world or not, he reigns. He reigns here, he reigns there, he reigns everywhere. Psalm 93 says the Lord reigns, he is robed in majesty. Consider the glory of our divine king. It's impressive enough that he's the son of David, right? But that he also, the Lord Jesus, who walked and dwelt among us, is also the son of God, the one who lives and rules and reigns over all. Jesus quotes Psalm 110 to tell us of this glorious fulfillment, this glorious throne that is his. But then he has one final point to make, one final truth for us to know about this messianic secret that is now revealed, and that is the victory of this Messiah, the victory of the Messiah. Go back to me, with me to uh, our verse, that's in Matthew 22. You see Jesus quotes in verse 44 from Psalm 110. The Lord said to my Lord, he could have stopped there. That's enough. That proves the point. That shows us who the Messiah is. It shows us the Messiah is God. But he keeps going. Why does he keep going? There's something more he wants us to know and learn about who he is as king. He goes on, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. This tells us, of, as Jim has pointed out in the reading of Psalm 110, this right hand, this place of God's honor and power, to sit at his right hand. And it's the place to be, right? That's that place of strength. That's the place of honor. That's the place of power. Jesus, there's no greater place for him to be seated. But then you know, too, he's, he's sitting down. It seems almost nonchalant, right? But the Lord of everything is sitting down. He sits down for a couple of reasons. One, because he's accomplished all that needs to be accomplished to redeem you and me. There's nothing else left to be done so he can sit down. He lived the perfect life. He died the atoning death. He rose victorious from the grave. He has ascended now into heaven. There's nothing left that Jesus needs to accomplish that you and I might be redeemed from sin and death. But even more than that, he sits because he is now in session as the reigning king of the world. If you can picture for a moment uh, a courtroom, right? You can imagine, hopefully not too many of you have been there very often, but you can imagine in a courtroom and the judge comes in and they announce all rise. Everybody stands up and then you wait and the judge sits down. Everybody sits down. And then what do they, they say? Court is in session, right? 
The judge doesn't sit down and put his feet up on the, the desk and a hand behind his head and just chill, right? No, he's there to work. He's there to judge. He's there to be in charge. There's something about this sitting in order to rule and to reign and to judge. Court is in session. So too is Jesus now seated as king of the world on the throne, the place and position of power. So we wonder, what is Jesus doing right now? Where is he and what is he doing right now? Well, according to him, he is right now sitting at the right hand of God. We read in the book of Acts chapter 2, he is enthroned at the right hand of God the Father. Paul describes it in Ephesians 1 as seated above all authorities and power. He's on his throne ruling. He is in charge. He's king over everything. We've seen already in this service, part of this is his work of intercession, his prayer. He doesn't sleep or slumber. He lives to make intercession for us. He is continually bringing you and me, his beloved brothers and sisters, before the throne of his and our Father. It's a sweet aroma as he makes those prayers for us. But you know what he's also doing? He's also waiting. Paul points out in 1 Corinthians 15, he must reign until he has put all enemies under his feet. Though the king reigns, there are still enemies in this world. His enemies and our enemies. It doesn't mean he's not king. It doesn't mean he's not in charge. It doesn't mean he doesn't have any authority. But it means for a time and for a season, he and we are waiting. Waiting until God has put all enemies under his feet. See, here's the truth. Jesus, our very flesh and blood, the earthly son of David is now at God's right hand on his throne. He is great David's greater son. He is the son of God seated at God's right hand. And if you're an enemy of God, there is no more terrifying thought than that. That he's not in the grave. That you didn't win. That his enemies didn't win. The grave could not contain him. Death did not rule victorious over him. That he has reigned. And though in this life, evil and wickedness may prosper for a time and for a season, the king is waiting. And the king will return. Now he offers peace. He offers peace by his own blood. He extends now the olive branch of peace to those who have rebelled against him. He has laid down his life that you and I might come in, that you and I might be at peace with the king of the world. But if not, we remember, as we have read over and over again, the master is returning to the field. The king is coming back for his kingdom. But if we are a friend of God, then there is no more comforting thought in the world than to know that he is on his throne. There's no more comforting thought to reassure us in a world where we look out and it seems at times like his enemies are winning. Our enemies are triumphant, right? But we are reminded 
by this verse and this truth that the king, Jesus, is on his throne. That when you go to open up the bank statement tomorrow morning, and it's not as much as you thought it was going to be, the king is on the throne. That when you meet with uh, your finance guy to talk about retirement, and it turns out, man, that's not going to go as long as you thought it was going to go. The king is on his throne. Then when you got that diagnosis last month that you were dreading, the king is on his throne. That you're stuck in that, you know, that medical vortex and you get referred to a generalist who refers you to the specialist and you got to go to make an appointment and you got to go here and there. And you're just, I know some of you right now are just stuck waiting, waiting and waiting. And it feels like no one's in charge and nobody cares. The king is on his throne. We live in a world of broken and fractured relationships between parents and children, between friends, between brothers and sisters, between husbands and wives. And that can be one of the most heartbreaking things to experience in this life. And why can't it be fixed? And why can't we be at peace? And why can't we repair what is broken? And we are reminded and reassured and comforted to know that the king is on his throne. When others fail you, when your parents fail you, when your teachers fail you, when your pastors fail you, the king is on his throne. When we step out in faith to bear witness to Christ and we're laughed at, we're ignored, we're rejected, we're fired, we remember the king is on his throne. When we are weary and beat down by life under the sun and the circus that never seems to end, we are reminded the king is on his throne. He will defeat and crush every enemy, every last one of his enemies, until he gets to the last one, which Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians 15 is death itself. And Paul tells us the last enemy to be destroyed is death. Death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? For Jesus in Matthew 22, no more disguises. No more games, no more secrets, no more hiding. The Messiah is here. And they know it. That's why this final verse, they don't ask him any more questions. They're out. <laughs> They're done. He is great David's greater son. He is on his throne. He is seated in power. He is robed in majesty. Come this day and bow before your king. Repent of your sin. Trust in your king, for he is coming, and he will return, and he will reign forever and ever. Amen. Let's pray. Our Lord, prepare us to meet your son when he returns. Grant us the faith to believe that he is who he says he is. Grant us eyes to see the, the promises of this text. Grant us ears to hear the, the warnings and the, the reassurances of Scripture. And Lord, I pray that your sheep would go into yet another week, a week in a world that is full of your enemies, a week in a world that is, is under the heat of the sun, bearing thorns and thistles that produce sorrow upon sorrow in this life. Will we go forth under the flying banner that Christ is king? 
that Jesus is on his throne, that the Lord said to our Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool under your feet. Lord, grant us faith to rest and rejoice in that truth today and always. In Jesus' name we pray.